Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for um, supporting Skylight. I will now hand it over to the Amanda Fletcher. The Amanda Fletcher. The Amanda Fletcher. She knows me so well. Thank you for coming, everybody. Thank you, Carrie. What a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Skylight Books. Um, David, Kelsey, Carrie. The meet and greet is one of my favorite events of the year, and the reason for that is that very often um, someone who's sitting in the audience one year ends up on the panel the next year. That has happened. Show of hands, who was here last year and is now... Yeah, same situation. Happened to me multiple years, but yeah end up on the panel. So it happens. Uh, It's really exciting. So thank you to Skylight for giving us the space to talk about writing. And thank you to Mike, Patrick, Natalie, Jen, and to our 2017 EVs, Pete and Soleil, for sitting on our panel today. Thank you, Stacey Vallis, over there for handling refreshments. And thank you, Christopher, our outreach intern for 2018. If you guys take a look at the plaid shirt and the long curly hair, if you have questions, he's your guy, okay? And also me. So you can ask us all questions, but make sure we use Christopher. And thank you to all of you for coming out tonight to support Penn Center USA and the Emerging Voices Fellowship. As Carrie said, my name is Amanda Fletcher and I am the head of Emerging Voices, but I was also a fellow in 2012 and little known fact, I applied in 2011 and did not get it. So, it's like you just have to stay committed. Did you say Jesus? Jesus. (laughs) Starting us off good. Thanks, Patrick. For those of you who don't know, Penn Center USA is a branch of Penn International, the world's leading international literary and human rights organization. Based in Los Angeles and serving the Western US, Penn works to foster a vibrant literary community of writers, readers, and champions of the written word. We bring people together to advocate for free expression, to celebrate writers and their stories, and support new and undiscovered voices that deserve to be heard, voices like those in this room and on this panel. Penn is a membership organization, and everything we do is completely supported by membership fees, donations, and grants. Some of you might have had a chance to look at the uh, EV application or gone over the FAQs. Nodding, yes, you've done that. Okay. So you may have noticed that professional Penn Center USA members are not eligible to apply. It doesn't mean that you can't be a Penn member or be a Penn supporter. It just means that that category, professional Penn member, means that you're already a published writer and you're working as a writer, so you don't have need for the Emerging Voices Fellowship. Emerging Voices is a literary mentorship that aims to provide new writers who are isolated from the literary establishment with the tools, skills, and knowledge they need to launch a professional writing career. 141 writers get to call themselves Emerging Voices. And this is the first time I've said 141 because I'm including the 2017 EVs. So that's kind of exciting. 
It's a special thing. The NEA has stated this is the only national fellowship of its kind in the U.S. EV alumni have published or have forthcoming almost 50 books, have received hundreds of anthology inclusions, awards, honors, and fellowships. So this is the brag sheet, and you can look at this after. This is like, this sucker's 13 pages long. So I can throw out those numbers, but when you see it here, it's like, wow, this thing really works. And then behind Soleil and Mike, we've got a couple EV graduates. Uh, Lillian Rivera and Natasha Dion. Their books are up. They're in the bookstores. It actually works. You get to be a published writer. Let me change my page. So on my on my script it says hold up an apply card, but I do not have an apply card. Does anybody have one? So you guys hold up the apply card. So if you have one. If you don't have one, take a look at your neighbor's apply card. You know, we're already starting this whole literary community thing. Um, Make friends with your neighbor. We're going to talk about everything you see on the card and some other great stuff that you don't. And what better way to start a discussion about a writing fellowship than to hear what a few of the fellows and even a couple of mentors have written about it. Let's start with Peter H.C. Zhu. Peter was born in Taipan, Taiwan, and raised in the San Gabriel Valley. He has an English degree from UCLA and a psychology degree from Cal State LA. His fiction has appeared in The Margins, Pinball, FR Online, Your Impossible Voice, and is forthcoming in Flapper House. Peter is currently working on a short story collection. Welcome, Peter. Do you want me to move all my stuff? Thank you, Amanda. Oh, okay. Hey, everybody. Just a little essay about the fellowship. All right. A writer sometimes feels alone. This is because you write alone. This is the way it works. It's not a terrible way for things to work. It can be a wonderful way for things to work. It works like this. You're alone, and when you're alone, a magic happens. The magic unfolds like out of thin air. A place unfolds, a place that, for example, has a wide road with a dirt shoulder in a small coastal Virginia town where there are millions of skinny gray trees that layer the spaces in between houses. Then a person unfolds, a person that, for example, is a Chinese-American kid who's nervous and observant and full of conflicting longings to be both perfectly normal and also to be especially unique. This is a story. A story unfolds, a story unfolds when you're alone, but still sometimes a writer feels lonely. And a writer sometimes feels lonely because you write alone. This is the way it works, but sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes your writing gets lost. When your writing gets lost, You can't figure out what's being written. You can't figure out if what's being written makes sense. You can't figure out if the characters are believable. You can't figure out if the plot makes sense, or even if there is a plot. You can't figure out if the writing is boring, or too decorated, or badly paced, or too full of adjectives, or too repetitive. And then sometimes a writer feels alone because you're still alone even when you're not writing. Sometimes you don't have anyone to talk to about writing or about books 
or about things you never thought about, like agents and editors, and publishers and journal submissions and readings and workshops and grants and fellowships and retreats and masters of fine arts. Sometimes you hear about these things in passing and hearing about these things feels like the weight of a stranger's universe is pressing down on your will to continue to write. And then sometimes uh, a writer goes to a special event like, for example, the Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellowship Meet and Greet at Skylight Books. (laughs) You go and stand outside looking in through the front doors. You sometimes stand outside for a very long time and then go home without going in. (laughs) Another time, you walk past the front doors, walking at a brisk pace, craning your neck to get a peek inside, but not stopping. And then another time you stop at the front doors and pretend to be looking at your cell phone, (laughs) checking messages, and not going in. And sometimes you get a call while standing at the front door pretending to check messages. And then you take the call and go back to your car and drive away. And then you feel relieved having missed out on something that you really wanted. But it was scary in any way. Who did you think you were fooling? But sometimes a writer goes in through the front doors and someone shakes your hand and offers to read your work. And someone likes your work. And someone offers to mentor you. Someone like, for example, the award-winning New York Times best-selling novelist and, in my opinion, the mayor of the L.A. literary scene, J. Ryan Straddle, author of Kitchens of the Midwest, And someone else likes your work and introduces you to other writers, for example, who turn out to be the 2017 Emerging Voices Fellowship Cohort. (laughs) Four people who will make you laugh so hard you'll cry and cry so hard you'll laugh. Four people that you have no idea yet how much you're going to love as writers and human beings. And then things really start to come together in a hurry. Someone arranges a class for you at UCLA Extension. Another someone puts you on a stage, a stage for reading, and there's a room full of people there to hear you read. Someone then sets up a seven-month schedule where every Monday you sit down with a published author or a literary agent or a book publisher, and they each give you two hours of the inside scoop on what the literary world is about, both the craft of writing and the business. And then after a while, you have a sense of belonging, and you understand better what your vision is both for your work and for the writer's life. And then you don't feel as alone, but you also start to miss that feeling. You miss that feeling of being alone. So then this is how it works. You write alone because you feel alone because a writer uh, writes alone. (laughs) That was supposed to have like a (laughs) a little more impact. (laughs) Good recovery, Pete. Good recovery. Well, we're glad you came in the front doors, finally. And you guys, too. Hey, does anyone wonder who that someone is that does all that stuff? Hmm, maybe it's me. Sorry, it's always about me, guys. 
All right, Soleil David was born and raised in the Philippines and now lives in Los Angeles. She graduated with high distinction from the University of California, Berkeley, and will be an MFA in poetry candidate at Indiana U University Bloomington in the fall. Congrats, Soleil. Her poetry and prose have been published in Our Own Voice, The Philippine Daily Inquirer, Pittsburgh Poetry Review, Santa Ana River Review, and the Asian American Writers Workshop Anthology, The Margins. She is currently working on a collection of poems. Welcome, Soleil. Hi. Thanks for coming, everyone. I discovered writing at the age of eight, penning a poem about brave little girls who aren't afraid of the dark. My mother encouraged me, sending the poem to a children's newspaper where it got published sometime later. I still have that paper clipping, my first ever poem, an illustration to accompany it, and my byline, the pride of that moment. Years passed after my first publication and I was still writing. Short stories, poems, and small essays I kept close to the chest. I had stopped thinking of publishing my work as anything feasible, unsure that I'd find footing within the closed doors of the Philippine literary set. There was a prescriptive way to do this, I knew instinctively, but whatever that way was, I still had yet to find it. I knew that there were gatekeepers, but they were most probably in Manila, and I was only an unconnected kid writing in the province. I kept grappling with my work in the dark, reading classics to figure out how to tell a story, showing very few people my work. I was quite happy in the dark, feeling that writing itself was its own reward. And yet, and yet, the need to be heard. When I moved to the United States, becoming a published writer seemed simultaneously more and less possible. On one hand, the size of the country indicated more opportunities. I have heard of writers flocking to New York, yet my favorite writer lives in Minneapolis. Stephen King lives in Maine. Where you live didn't seem to matter as much as it did in the Philippines, where everything seems to revolve around Manila. On the other hand, I had even less of an idea about how to start being a published writer. I didn't know any writers in Los Angeles, didn't meet anyone interested in the arts in the neighborhood where I lived. I was painfully shy and painfully navigating a new country. Experiencing what I now know was culture shock, but back then only felt like a roaring disconnect. I was painfully coming to terms with the fact that it'll be a long time before I see my family in one room. Through it all, I kept going back to my writing because it was one constant thing among many upheavals. Puttering in the dark, fashioning a bed out of the dim, gray material of my work. Writing with little hope or ambition to be heard. I took my first creative writing workshops in college where I saw what a writing group looks like for the first time. The first stirrings of hope, a glimpse into a writer's life. When I started working, I found a mentor and a friend in Douglas Kearney who kindly let me sit in on poetry workshops he was teaching. He was the one who encouraged me to apply to the Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellowship. 
After being accepted as an emerging voice, I learned that author evenings are a significant component of the fellowship where the fellows converse with local authors, poets, and agents about craft. At one of these evenings with Ron Carlson, he talked about how he knew that his students have been grappling with their work by the look in their eyes. He said, it's the look of having been in the dark. The fellowship introduced me to ways to be heard once I was done puttering about with no lights on. Through the fellowship, I met the loving, supportive, and fiercely loyal Los Angeles literary community. I have a new mentor, Ashaki M. Jackson, who not only helps me with my poetry, but is also a great resource for life advice and the best brunch spots in the city. <laughs> because of the fellowship, I know exactly who to get in touch with when I need a break from the dark. Emerging voices is a necessary light to balance the darkness, the community to seek after the requisite alone time. For the longest time, I had thought that I could keep writing alone in the darkness, never to be heard. What a privilege to know. There are people waiting to hear. Thank you. Thanks, Soleil. Natalie Lima is a 2016 Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellow and a Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation, or VONA, alum. She is a first-generation college graduate of Northwestern University, where she received her BA in Radio, Television, Film, and International Studies. Her fiction and essays have been published or are forthcoming in Word Riot, Entropy, The Rattling Wall, Reservoir Lit, Paper Darts, and elsewhere. Welcome, Natalie Lima. Um, okay, so I wrote this essay about a year ago. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, about a year ago, around this time last year, and um, it opens with a Roxane Gay quote that I came across the first time I was rejected from this fellowship. I um, read this essay. It was a blog post of hers on Pink that she'd written back when she was editing it still. And the whole post was about how people would submit to Pink, um, writers would submit their work, and then they'd get really angry when they didn't get um, published, and they would write her really nasty emails back. So she wrote this long blog post on rejection and essentially on how um, rejection is part of the writer's life, okay? Rejection is the most common thing a writer can experience. When it comes to writing, rejection is the rule, not the exception. If you cannot handle rejection, don't be a writer. Roxanne Gay. In the last eight months, I've been awarded a Penn Center USA Emerging Voices Fellowship and a Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation Vona Fellowship, had my first short story published, another short story accepted for publication, and was admitted to fully funded um, MFA creative writing programs. Before you vomit, I want to tell you that I share this not to make anyone hate me, but because I did not receive any of these accolades the first time I applied for them. To be even clearer, I was rejected a lot before I heard one yes to my writing. My new joke is that I never get anything the first time I apply, so I always save all of my applications and prepare to apply again. 
Around this time last year, I was lying in my bed late at night, eating McDonald's apple pies in an oversized muumuu, feeling sorry for myself. I had recently started writing again after several years without writing a word, and I and I decided to apply for several writing opportunities. I received rejection letters from every opportunity I applied for last year, emerging voices, 14 MFA programs one by one over several weeks, and the Vona workshop that I desperately wanted to attend. Each rejection included phrases like, we received tons of applications, it was a very difficult decision, keep writing, don't give up. With each letter, I felt my self-doubt inflate inside of me, like a balloon, the pressure leaving room for not much else. For a couple of weeks, I brooded and ate multiple desserts a day. I contemplated going to law school for the millionth time. I began to believe that my voice wasn't worth being heard. I wanted to give up writing again. Then I remembered the Emerging Voices meet and greet that I attended the summer before. I remembered the current fellows being asked, did any of you apply for the fellowship more than once? I noticed several of them timidly raised their hands in front of the large crowd of prospective applicants. I also remembered why the fellowship existed to begin with, to give a voice to those who may not typically have one otherwise, to those of us who haven't seen much of our own stories in literature because we grew up poor or Latina or code-switching or female or disabled or queer or fat. So I started writing again, and this time without worrying about the writing fellowships or programs or contests, I simply wrote for me because I liked to write as a kid and as a teenager, because I quit writing in my 20s for no good reason. I went to work each day, and afterwards I drove to my local coffee shop and ate cheap egg sandwiches and wrote all evening. I read diversely. I wrote more frequently. I took myself seriously as a writer, as a person with a story to tell. When the EV application came back around, I decided to give it another shot. I got in the second time. I felt better the second go-round because I'd worked harder. This time, it felt like I'd earned it. As the fellowship went on, we talked to authors that we met with about the submissions process. They shared about having poetry manuscripts rejected over and over, having novels sit in a drawer for years due to a lack of confidence, memoirs unwritten because of fear, and finally pushing through all of that self-doubt. Sometimes I think, where would I be right now had I not given it all another shot, had I not believed in my stories enough to apply again? Thank you. Thanks, Natalie. Natalie drove all the way here from Arizona, too, to, uh, to participate, so these people are dedicated. <laughs> all right. Jen Wong's parents brought her to the United States from Shanghai, China, when she was six years old. She grew up in South Los Angeles through the L.A. riots and eventually earned her degree in art history from the University of Southern California. She has worked for several social service organizations, including DSTL Arts, L.A. Conservation Corps, Homeboy Industries, and L.A. County Arts Commission. Her work has appeared in Dirty Laundry Lit, Los Angeles Review of Books, Allowed, Entropy, Angel City Review, and Tongue and Groove, among others. She is a recipient of... She's a 2016 Penn Emerging Voices Fellow and a 2017 Idlewild Arts Week Writer Fellow. Jen is currently finishing her first memoir about the lonely journey of the American dream. Welcome, Jen. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming out here today. It's so nice to see uh, so many people here. Um, so 
I'm going to just uh, read a piece that I wrote about um, kind of a, a little bit of my journey before I came to Evie and then a little bit of it afterwards because I know that the 2016 Evies will tell you all about their wonderful experience. I'm sorry, the 2017 Evies. I was born in a country without human rights, but I got comfortable and forgot what that was like. I grew up for the most part in this country, the good old USA, home of the brave, land of the animal print snuggies. Even growing up in South LA was many steps up from China. At least we had running water and color TV. I was pretty proud of myself for achieving what I thought was the American dream. I graduated college, I got my citizenship, I had a cushy job, and lived in a cool part of town with good-looking online dating profiles. <laughs> Democrats had a majority in Congress. There was even a gym in the basement of my building. This was success, right? Then somewhere along the road to the American dream, I must have fallen asleep. I got to my destination, and I couldn't remember how I got there. But then something shifted. I woke up one morning to go to work and saw women without homes sleeping outside of my apartment, getting sprayed down by the street security to move. A small mom-and-pop store selling socks and candies next door closed its doors to make room for luxury apartments. Everywhere, poor people were a nuisance. And then at dinner, my mom reminded me that I grew up just a few blocks south of where I was living. I saw my blind spot for the first time. Then in 2015, I found my semi-conscious self visiting Beijing for an art exchange program because why not? It was my first time visiting the capital, and I went with a group of artists to visit another group of artists. We saw Ai Weiwei's studio, where he made art about the pillaging that happened during the Cultural Revolution that my dad lived through. We went to a studio and saw sculptures of Mao Zedong taking aim with a bayonet. We met another artist who regularly hiked the Great Wall in order to remember that China wasn't always so cruel to its people. The artist told us that cops often showed up at their studios to harass them, that the state sent in bulldozers to their properties and without giving a reason, that sometimes when citizens speak up, they disappear, or their families disappear, or their children disappear. Being an artist and telling the truth in China is dangerous. People on the streets asked my group where we were from. Based on the many ethnicities and colors, they couldn't comprehend that all eight of us were from one country. A woman sitting at a park bench thought we were French. A group of touring Nigerians at Tiananmen Square guessed that we were Canadians. Each time we explained that we were Americans. We were proud of our diversity. On the plane right back over the Pacific Ocean, I found myself clutching a book and asking, who am I? When I came back to LA, I had an urge to write. And then I fast forward to today. I'm a person with a story. I have something to say. And unlike my brothers and sisters back in China, I have every opportunity to do so here in this country. Pan Emerging Voices helped me get here. To think that people would drive to hear me speak on a panel or tell a story on stage or read at a bookstore even just a few years ago was simply bananas. But that's the beauty of being a Penn Emerging Voices Fellow. I'm connected to a community of writers, all of you here. Amazing writers, nationally known writers, like my mentor, Patrick O'Neill. Need a blurb for your book? Why not call up Lydia Yuknovich? I recently said to another writer. Your, per your piece is perfect for this journal. I know the editor. 
Oh, hey, what's up? I said to Natasha Dion, whose book is right back there. Fancy seeing you here at Portos. And then at an event just a few... <laughs> and then at an event just a few weeks ago, I saw Jane Smiley rocking out with a glass of wine to Snoop Dogg's Gin and Juice, DJed by none other than F. Douglas Brown. If you don't know these names yet, don't worry. They're all part of the Penn EV community, and that's what you get here. Community and credibility. Credibility to tell your story and community to get those stories heard. Because of Penn, I am now connected. I now know how to get myself published. I have the resources to master my craft, and I'm even okay with calling myself a writer. Thank you, guys. So good. I'm so proud of you guys. Okay, so obviously these guys are talented, right? And it gives you an idea of like what, what you're up against when you apply. Um, so, but, but how do we get here? Like how do we, um, what's the most important element? Like what do you need? Like how do you become a writer? Uh, and the, the cornerstone of Emerging Voices is mentorship. Fellows are matched with a mentor based off of their writing samples, their interview responses, and a particular way that the writer's work happens to fit. Um, more than that, I can't tell you or I have to kill you. Maybe our mentors can explain it. So let's go to Patrick O'Neill, who is the author of the memoir Gun, Needle, Spoon. And his writing has appeared in numerous publications, including Juxtapose, Salon, The Nervous Breakdown, The Weaklings, After Party Magazine, and Razor Cake. O'Neill is a contributing editor for Sensitive Skin Magazine, a, push, a Pushcart nominee, and a two-time nominee for Best of the Net. He holds an MFA from Antioch University, Los Angeles, where he's an instructor for the Inspiration to Publication program. Most days you can find him teaching some form of creative writing at various rehabs, correctional facilities, institutions, and workshops. And he's the coordinator for the Why There Are Words Los Angeles reading series. And Patrick mentored Jen last year. Thanks, Patrick. How you doing? Mentoring a writer is no small feat. It is either the ultimate, ultimate egotistical gesture pretending you actually know what you're doing enough to help someone steer them in a positive direction, or is the wide-eyed alliance of two folks that are just going to deal with whatever comes their way and whatever gracefully they can mutually muster. Who wrote this shit? Anyway, I am... I am not sure if our, our mentorship was both, neither, or some combination in between, but I do know that as Jen's mentor, I was awarded the unique experience of witnessing a writer coming into her home. That beautiful evolution where the words finally flow, fit, and become cohesive. And the writer begins to actually consider herself to be a writer with confidence, dignity, and ability. And no wonder my glasses are so smeared I can't even see through them. Don't become old. Thank you. Uh, while the paragraphs become pages that turn to chapters and a structure emerges, one that will definitely, not maybe, be the final manuscript that your mentee will be submitting for publication to agents, to presses, to that unholy scrutiny that scares the shit out of all of you, all of us, and every other writer. You have to wonder why we do this, and why would we wish this on anyone? And the answer is that we're writers, and that's what we do. And as an EV mentor, I have learned more about myself as a writer internalize my critical eye on my own work while providing the same for my mentee which is a gift that only the act of being of service can provide thank you beautiful thank you also that's on Facebook live just FYI <laughs> 
Okay, so fellows meet with their mentor a minimum of three times in person and maintain monthly contact. Written feedback, reading recommendations, and very often menus, brunch, brunch menus in Soleil's case, are exchanged so that your work and the craft of writing are your primary conversation over the course of seven months. But with Facebook now, and depending on your mentee, that conversation could go on indefinitely. Let's ask Mike Padilla. Mike Padilla is a native Californian in love with his state and its inhabitants who inspire his stories. He is the author of the short story collection Hard Language and the novel The Girls from the Revolutionary Cantina. His characters run the gamut of personalities from cholos to movie stars, from elderly compadres to party-seeking club rats. Padilla was born in Oakland, California and grew up in neighboring San Leandro. He has received numerous awards including the UC Irvine Chicano Latino Literary Award and an artist fellowship from the California Arts Council and Mike mentored Miss Natalie Lima last year. Welcome Mike. So when I was deciding what I wanted to say today, um, I didn't think that Natalie was actually going to be here. <clears throat> and she surprised me a couple of days ago and said, hey, I'm going to be there. Um, and at that time, not wanting to put words into her mouth, um, I messaged her and I asked her to tell me in a sentence or two what the whole mentoring thing had meant to her. And this is what she wrote back. She said, it's great to have someone who inspires you tell you that you inspire them. A person who doesn't mind being my first reader. Someone who encourages me when I second-guess myself. When she responded to me with these words, it made me think back to the people who, in one capacity or another, had mentored me. And what Natalie said pretty much matched up with my own experience and having been, having been on the receiving end of mentoring. But it also made me realize that the things that she got from being mentored were very similar to the things that I got from mentoring her. For example, it was inspiring to work with somebody who was able to commit herself um, to the massive amount of work that she had to undertake as part of this program. <clears throat> and I've mentioned to several people over the course of the past year that I finally finished writing a novel that I'd been working on for several years. And it was in no small part a result of drawing inspiration from watching someone just over half my age fully throw herself into her work, even in the face of countless other life responsibilities and challenges. And I think that kind of speaks to another point, which is that as writers, we're all sort of in this together, regardless of age or experience level or the genre that we're writing in or whether or not we've ever published. We have more in common with each other than not. And I think it's both natural and incumbent on us that we support each other in whatever way we can. Mentorship, in whatever form that takes, formal or casual, is one prong in that support system. Because the whole process of writing really only becomes a little bit easier over time. And every time we start a new project, we're sort of back to the same starting line again, in need of support and encouragement all over again in order to move forward. For me, the people that have been most valuable to me in my work have been the people who keep me pushing forward when I'm stuck. You could call it writer's block, I suppose, but for me that encompasses everything from self-doubt to having written myself into a corner in a story that I can't figure out how to back out of, to just feeling suddenly uninterested in a project that I've been working on. 
And I've been lucky that I've had fellow writers, and not just writers, but other people who create stuff, who make stuff, that were able to teach me and continue to remind me that there's always a way to get over that hill, that every story problem has a solution, that every character can be reimagined in, in a new way, that every difficult scenario can be solved if you come at it from the right angle and with the right momentum. And if I played even a little part in helping Natalie to keep going as those pen emerging voices deadlines were approaching, then that's something. Um, to switch off to something a little different, um, one of my favorite things about Natalie were, and still are, her Tinder exchanges, which she posts online from time to time. Um, you heard her essay a little earlier, which was wonderful. Um, but I don't think you probably caught some of her or got to experience some of her more wicked wit, which is one of the things that I love working with her about. And so I thought I would, I got her permission to do this. I asked her if I could share three tiny little Tinder exchanges. Guy on Tinder. Hey, Natalie, where'd you get that smile from? Natalie, I bought it at a swap meet. My, my teeth, too, and most of my hair on my body. <laughs> Guy on Tinder, I could use a blowjob if you're interested. Natalie, are you open-minded? Because I have this fantasy where I bite your cock off and spit it into the Atlantic Ocean and then watch as it floats away. <laughs> you sure you're okay with this, right? <laughs> This, one, this one's my personal favorite. I, I, I spit Diet Coke out of my, through my nose on my keyboard when I read this. Guy on Tinder. Make America great again. Natalie. No entiendo. Hey, give everybody a hand. I love how Natalie's like, yes, I did say that. Okay, so we're going to go into questions, and I'm going to hand the mic over because we only have one mic. But I want to know, Patrick, why did you say yes when you were asked to be a mentor? I think it really comes down to two reasons. Uh, one, there's like, uh, you know, we all know the state of the publishing world and who gets published and who doesn't. And it's uh, kind of, there's a, like, probably... A good portion of you in this room are, are voices that are not going to get heard or should be heard or are going to have a problem getting heard or not the status quo of getting heard. And if there's an ability to go out and help somebody do that and, you know, push someone along or just, you know, bestow onto what I've gotten and help somebody else in, 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 in that realm, then, then that's what I should be doing. And that brings me to, to, to the second part of it. The second part of it is if I don't give back to a community that gave so freely to me, and maybe not so freely, but it gave to me, uh, then, then what, what am I doing in this world? What am I, am I just taking and anything like that? I have a, I have a, I have a background that, that's uh, uh, checkered. And uh, uh, so, you know, I, I, I come from a, a place of, of, of recovery, of, of, of getting back to a place where uh, I'm not a taker, I'm more of a giver. I, I try and help people, and I'm not so self-centered. I'm not always that way, but I try my best. And if, if, if in the long run of these things, we have to look at what we can do to a community because we live in a community where we like it or not. Not all of us can afford to go to an MFA program. You know, and the reality is, the real reality is, 
That MFA program didn't do shit for me to realize how to get published, how to get out in the world, how to be a, how to be the writer, and, and and make my way in the literary world. That was, that was that was a huge thing, and that's what happens here. You know, Evie, Evie lets you uh, see the whole picture and, and and talk to people and find out what's going on, and so I think it's just it really really makes a difference to, you know, to 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 to. to be part of the community that you want to be part of. And, and if you want that community to change, you want that community to evolve, you want that community to um, make a difference in this world, then you've got to be that person that's doing it. And that's why I said yes. Thank you. Mike, tell us why you think it's so important that a writer has someone who's dedicated to looking just at their work. So you're not like, it's not like a teacher situation, it's a one-on-one situation. Um... So a couple of things to that. Um, the first thing that, that comes to mind is that um, when you're sort of in the process of cr- trying to create something and getting familiarized with the world of writing and publishing and so forth, and having to, especially in the emerging, in the emerging, um, uh, <laughs> okay, um, in, in a program that like, has you under you know, so much pressure to do so much in such a short amount of t- period of time. I think it is useful and important to always have like one singular person that you can reliably freak out to um, when you are about to miss a deadline or you're uncertain about um, you're starting to have self-doubts about your own like writing ability. Like one person that you can kind of flail around and be comfortable with in a way that you can't necessarily do if you're in a workshop situation or in a classroom. And that is not to suggest that Natalie ever freaked out in any way, shape, or form while we were working together, but the opportunity was there. Um, The other thing that I, I would say is that um, when you're going through a program like Emerging Voices or, or graduate school and an MFA program, whatever it happens to be, you can sometimes get so overwhelmed with all of the sort of non-writing, the writing-related but writing-related issues that kind of fill your head that don't actually have anything to do with directly putting words down on paper. And I think having a mentor uh, can be really useful in that that is the person who brings you back to the craft over and over again, brings you back to the paragraph that you started last week and says, so what are you going to do with this paragraph? How are you going to, what changes are you going to make to it? What happens next? Um, What are your word choices? Is this something the character would really think or say? Um, Having that sort of grounding in craft is important in any kind of mentoring, whether it's writing or whether it's art, whether it's painting, whether it's auto mechanics, just bringing you back to the thing itself, the thing thing at hand. Oh, my God. The next person better not be whipping the mic around like that or you're in trouble. Thank you. Hey, Pete, what's it like having Jay Ryan read your stuff and comment and eat food with him? Thanks, Amanda. Hold it still. Like this. Now, Jay Ryan, um, <laughs> is it weird holding the mic this quick to your face? <laughs> I feel like I'm going to sing or something. <laughs> is when's the track come on? I'm waiting for it. Uh, uh, Jay Ryan's been great, and I think it's, uh, it'd be more accurate to talk about the total experience of working with him, because Part of it is having his eyes on my on my work that I send to him, and he sees stuff that I 
like one of the things he's been able to do is see stuff that I know there's something wrong with it, and he can tell me like what it is that's not working, and give me some suggestions that may or may not hit home the suggestion itself. But he can give me some idea of like, okay, this is why, this is the direction you got to start to think about to make this work. Um, I can get into a long, elaborate example. No, I think I, actually what I really want to talk about though, on top of that though, with Jay, with Jay Ryan, is that um, like he's the kind of writer I aspire to be because he's a guy he he doesn't have an MFA, you know. He worked a, a day job and put together his novel like on the side, like from the ground up, writing short stories, getting one story published after a long, long time, finally getting enough stories published to have a collection, finally getting a novel manuscript together, getting that published, getting it to blow up, and now you know he's on his second novel that I think is uh, in in the editorial process right now. And being able to see how to be a writer as a professional is one of the most important things I got from him. It's not like he's giving me instructions on how to do that, but a lot of it is just sort of being around him and seeing how he does things. Um, His hard work as a writer is kind of like maybe two-thirds of that process, but the other third, I think this is a big deal that I'm really starting to embrace, is being a part of the community of writers. Jay Ryan puts in like lots of energy into the rest of us. Like he puts on readings, he, he volunteers at 826LA, he um, constantly supports other people to come to their readings. He was here, he was on his way to a party, he stopped by just to, just to see me mention his name one time, you know, so <laughs> he's just that kind of a guy, and I think, you know, that's something that has been really helpful to me, and I aspire to. Um, so that's all. That's, that's for the most part. J. Ryan Straddell. <laughs> I love it. He's like, he's just here to hear me say his name one time. That's all. <laughs> All right, Soleil talked about meeting Ron Carlson at an author evening and what an impact one thing he said on her, just that one thing. Now imagine that amplified by 25. That's how many times the current EVs sat down with an author or an agent, a publisher or an editor, and a delicious, if I may say so, cheese platter, to talk about craft and the business of writing. These are private events that take place in our office or perhaps in the author's home from 7 to 9 p.m., usually once a week, sometimes twice. Just to give you an idea, we saw Agent Bonnie Nadell last Monday. We saw Natasha Dion of Grace fame on Wednesday. And we will meet Dan Smetanka from Counterpoint Press this coming Monday. So, Soleil, tell us why you said author evenings are your favorite part of the fellowship. Um. Mostly just the cheese plate, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, my just the the breadth of um, of knowledge that you can get from all of the authors is just um, there's so much there's so much knowledge and know-how and experiences that it's really good to just hear all of these things from different people. Um, I've learned from all of these author evenings that there is not just one way to be a writer. Um, some of our authors have, you know, have full-time jobs and, you know, did uh, and would write on their lunch breaks. Some of them, you know, um, don't have jobs and just, you know, and just spend a lot of their time um, writing. Some of them are lawyers. Some of them have, like, jobs in finance. So, you know, like, a lot of, like, what you would think are very demanding jobs, but then they make it work. And some of, and a lot of them don't have MFAs, and some of them have, do, do have MFAs. So it's, 
um, it was just it's very interesting to know that there are so many ways to do this and there's just there's no one way to do it even if someone you know would tell you like um, like Natalie I I applied to MFAs twice and um, my first year uh, you know it wasn't as successful as I wanted it to be um, and you know and that and that disappointment like I thought that it, my life as a writer was over, but it's not because there's so many ways to do this. So, yeah. Thanks, Soleil. That's great. You guys are missing the cheese platter. I saw the 2016 eyes glaze over. Monday cheese platter. All right. So the voice class. So Evie's got a voice class before the mid-program reading. And um, many writers have never read their work in public or had any formal instruction on how to do so. And in recent years, we've been lucky enough to work with professional voiceover artist Dave Thomas, whose resume boasts Gatorade, BMW, features for the NFL Network, video game characters, and a reoccurring role on King of the Hill. And I'm going to ask Jen to tell us about her amazing day with Dave Thomas last year. Hi. Yeah, so Dave Thomas is a very intense, great instructor, but incredibly intense. And I I think everybody uh, who took that class with him that last year um, ended up crying at some point because it was just so intense. Like, he's very much about, you know, not just... Yes, writing is, is a big part of being a writer, but sharing your work is also a huge part of being your write, being a writer. Um, and he really talked about like how do you put yourself there in your piece emotionally uh, to be vulnerable and to open up um, because your audience really uh, react to that. Um, you know what a shame it would be to have a wonderful piece and then you read like a robot. Um, so he taught us a lot of those uh, skills um, about like lubricating your mouth with apple juice beforehand, so you don't you know do the do the thing um, when you're reading. Um, and then afterwards, he he records it and, and he sends it to me, um, and so that was really uh, helpful. Um, and because of that, those skills that I've learned from him. Um, like a couple weeks ago, I had another reading at a Tongue and Groove. Last weekend, I had a reading. Tomorrow, I'm going to have another reading at the last bookstore. Um, so every single time that I go to one of these readings, this is something that I think about um, and I really take with me. Thank you. I love Dave Thomas, but he is definitely intense. So let's move on to UCLA Extension Writers Program. Uh, how many of you in this room have taken a writing class already? Lots. And UCLA class? Couple? Okay. So you guys know how expensive those classes can get. Uh, UCLA genu- generously donates a 10 to 12 week genre specific class to each fellow and I know when I first moved to, to LA, UCLA was my first stop and my second and my third so we know the instructors are, instructors are great and I'd like Natalie to talk about her UCLA class and actually meeting Pete there, didn't you? Meet Pete there? Yeah. Yes. I see Danny here. Yeah. <laughs> So the UCLA classes are great. First, um, everything about it is everything is great. <laughs> you have this mentor. I have this mentor who's supporting me, Mike, and then I get to take this class, and I meet this instructor who also is supporting me and becomes a mentor as well. Um, so this was amazing. First of all, I had taken a couple of these UCLA classes before, and I love them. They're better than any of the writing classes I took as an undergrad. I felt way more supported there. I felt also like um, 
they're much more diverse because they're in the evenings and everyone, you know, most people there working full time. So they're diverse um, racially, age wise, the whole shebang. So I really love, love, love UCLA Extension because of that. And then they put me, um, EV, they pick your class, so they shove you in this class. <laughs> but you don't have to pay for it, which is great. <laughs> um, and then my first day there, I met Pete. Okay. He was sitting next to me, and the instructor was like, hey, write down the three books that inspire you. So everyone gets on the board and writes them down, trying to sound all scholarly and stuff. <laughs> but I had uh, Juno Diaz's Drown on there, and Pete turned to me and said, I love that book. I was like, yeah, awesome. And, <laughs> and then Pete started sharing his work, and I was like, oh, my God, he's so talented. So what's so great about this class is that like, I, made, I formed like a writing group with people in the class, and we became like a family. And then two of the writers in the class who I became friends with and started a writing group with are now current fellows. So it's like it was like a magical class. And... Um, um, yeah, so not only are you, you know, do you have the chance to workshop your work as a fellow, you're also building your community with your peers. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for um, these classes at UCLA Extension. They're great. I'm just going to stay over here because I'm going to go to Pete next. All right, so after the fellows take the UCLA class, they're placed in a master class. After, oh, sorry, I just said that. Where they workshop pages with a professional writer and in the best of circumstances, each other. Because as you may or may not know, Soleil was our only poet this year. So Soleil was placed in a master class with, it was an open class um, other poets could sign up for, with F. Douglas Brown and in tandem with poet Douglas Manuel, while the four prose fellows were workshopped together by Alex Espinoza. And I'd like Pete to talk about being in Alex's class. Um, yeah, Alex Espinoza is a extraordinarily talented novelist, and on top of that, he's a great advocate for the work of the people that he that he takes under his wing. And I feel like for us, um, and our relationship with Alex was really special and unique, in in a different way than even the UCLA classes, which are wonderful and they, you learn a lot and you get and there's a chance you'll meet people. But I felt like Alex had a personal investment in us. That he really cared that our work got better. That was personally important to him. But even more importantly, he cared for our well-being as artists. He wanted us to find a, a good community. He wanted us to maintain healthy, like, um, healthy states of mind. So it's really invaluable. Like That time with Alex was really incredible. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's go to Soleil. Soleil, what Let's talk about public readings, and you can talk about them in general, but um, what surprised you about the welcome party? Let's talk about the welcome party. Um, it was mostly surprising just how many people show up for these readings. Um, you know, I... I I've been to a lot of readings myself as, you know, as part of the audience and they never look as big as the ones here in LA and it's and I was telling Amanda once that once I move on from the fellowship I'm going to be very surprised, you know, not to find an entire room waiting <laughs> waiting to listen to what I'm, you know, to what, you know, bad poem I'm about to <laughs> to talk yeah. So so that's it it's so warm it's so welcoming and and it does like 
it I don't even have words for it. It's just, you know, just just to feel that people are there to listen to you. Thank you. So the EVs get three public readings over the course of the seven months. We have a welcome party in January, which for the last couple of years has been at LACE, um, Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibits on Hollywood Boulevard. The mid-program reading happens as part of the Tongue and Groove series at Hotel Cafe and happens generally a week or two after the voice class. And then the final culminating reading is generally at the end of July. And this year that's going to take place on, I want everyone to write this down, July 25th at the Skirball Cultural center so the best way to kind of see like what what's happening um, is in, in like what your competition is and to see how the EVs change is to kind of like hit these three writings because you really see like an evolution an evolution of craft and based off of that I want Patrick to talk about Jen's reading at the hotel cafe oh my God. <laughs> well you've been to the hotel cafe it's a very dark little place with the uh, you know, very no, not like the, the the person comes out on the stage and there's bright lights in their face, and then you're in the audience and you're in the dark, and so it's very uh, kind of jarring and hard to read there, and it's like really amazing to anybody can read there because I read there a few times and I can't see my work at all, you know, because it's like you're like the light the light comes straight at you like this, so you're like trying to figure out how to get around like this and that, and she had no problem. She walked straight out. She wrote this read this thing, very beautiful piece, and it was like. It's like it's like watching somebody just blossom, and that, that that's the best word to say. Like they, they just like you're just like got it, and 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 it's the confidence of walking through a program like this to help you out. I love like the huge smiles on everyone's face. I'm like, oh, I love you too. Uh, Mike, how was it to write the introduction for Natalie at Aloud, and how did it feel to see her on stage? Um, it, it's very, very interesting to sort of watch the evolution of her, not just the content of what she was doing, but like the evolution of her ability to present herself and sort of stand up there and <clears throat> do her power pose to get into <laughs> into the right frame of mind beforehand. It just really sort of paid off. Um, and as I, and in terms of I wrote a little introduction before she came out to, to speak. And it was actually kind of a very emotional thing to write because when you're sort of mentoring and going through this whole program, you don't kind of quite realize you, you're sort of not seeing the forest for the trees. And then at that event, you're sort of forced to step back and see the forest. And it's there's a lot of trees. And there's a lot of work that's gone into um, each one of these fellows uh, putting into their, putting into creating their, their overall or whatever you want to call it at that point. Great, thank you. So we've heard the word community quite a few times, and when you look at the list of benefits uh, on the Emerging Voices program page, community is kind of like the hidden one because you see that you get master classes and you get author evenings and you get public readings, but really all of this kind of leads to this idea of community. And... Um, one, the, the fellowship was actually created for writers from underrepresented communities, immigrant women, in fact, 20, over 20 years ago. And what does that mean for applicants today? 
This concept has evolved to include any circumstance that might hold a writer back, be it your ethnicity, your age, gender, geographic location, socioeconomic status, or even your subject matter. The onus is on you, though, to explain to the selection committee through your application how you feel isolated or underrepresented um, and without literary community. Many writers come to the fellowship without knowing other writers. Some have never even met one. This is an an expression of literary isolation. Vital aspects of being an emerging voice are the relationships that develop within your cohort and beyond to include all of the alumni. As Pete so eloquently explained in his essay, writing remains a solitary endeavor, but you're never really alone again. So... You guys, anybody can jump in if you want to, but I'm kind of curious to hear from Natalie because she jumped right into an MFA program, how the sense of community within EV differed from your MFA program. Cool? Oh my God, this is way better <laughs> than the MFA. Oh my God. I'm still regretting it. I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's what I tell my mom. Don't tell my mom I just said that. Um, uh, This is totally different than being an MFA. An MFA, it's like torture. I don't know what it is. I'm I'm the wrong person to ask about the MFA right now. Um, I'm in a bittersweet place with the MFA. This experience, though, which you guys are here for, is amazing. Um, the community here is different. It's like, um, first of all, it's way more diverse. Um, you're going to meet writers at all different levels. Um, you know, there's, uh, you have the LA literary scene, which is magical, um, which I had, you know, I had no literary scene before a Penny V. Um, I didn't know any famous writers before this. And then now, I know a lot of famous writers, which is very weird. And famous writers comment on my Facebook posts. <laughs> it's like weird, and then like, and the community is just beautiful. I still remember one of our first author evenings with was with Janet Fitch. And I still remember reading White Oleander in high school. And I went to a really ghetto-ass high school in Miami. Um, it was like a C rating, like A through F. <laughs> um, and... Um, you know, I, I picked up White Oleander per a teacher's recommendation, and I read it on my own, and I just thought, wow, like, so amazing. Someone wrote a book, and this book is one of my favorite books I've ever read, and I've never forgotten it. And then I go to an author evening, and Janet Fitch is in the audience, and I start freaking out. <laughs> and everyone's like, let's get a picture. Let's get you guys in a picture. And I introduce myself to her. And she acted like I was, like, a normal person. <laughs> And so that experience is um, its going to be one of the, the most amazing experiences of my life is being able to be around these really accomplished people, um, you know, my mentor, all these other writers, and being treated as a peer. Um, and that becomes a magical experience where you're like, oh, wow, like... I feel like I'm like kind of a peer amongst these people, and that's um, been the most beautiful experience for me um, out of the the community here. Anybody else? Have anything you want to add? No pressure. Go over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of wanted to speak to um, the MFA program too, since you know while I was doing this. I was deciding between MFA programs, and for me, I just kept thinking, I want to be able to recreate this as much as possible. So 
I chose a program that was smaller, that that's um, that's more that's diverse, because because I never want this to end. <laughs> we don't want you to go, Soleil. That's awesome. Thank you. So being a part of a vibrant literary community also means volunteering, just giving back, paying it forward. The EVs are asked to volunteer for pen events like Roxanne Gay at Hollywood Forever or Lit Fest at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, where we will be honoring Margaret Atwood this year. So like not hard gigs. That's what I'm trying to point out. They're also expected, though, to complete a volunteer project. This year, we partnered with 826LA, Pops the Club, and DSTL Arts, placing fellows in mentorship capacities and extracurricular creative writing projects. The volunteer experience, though, is ever-evolving, so for 2018, this could mean allowing the fellows to propose their own volunteer experience. Pete, why don't you tell us about 826LA? Uh, 826LA is a literary nonprofit in LA. They have offices on the east side, on the west side, and they go in, in schools in, uh, in South L.A. too. Um, I'd never heard of them before, and I didn't know what to expect when I got there, but they are, on the, on, for the first part, they're phenomenally well organized, so it's really easy to get plugged in um, and, and get on their calendar and just sign up and do stuff. And the actual things that they do are amazing for these kids. Like The thing I was doing is they're called, um, they're called literary field trips. So kids come in come into the, the office, a bunch of them, and we put on basically like a play for them. And the play is that everyone's going to get fired unless these kids come up with like an amazing book that they can publish. But the, the, the best part of it is they, all, they always come up with a really great book. Like as good as... I'm, I'm, I really am tempted to steal some of their stories. They're like, they're that good. So it's, it's super fun. 826LA. I'm going to keep doing it after the fellowship here, and I'd recommend it to anybody. That's great. Thank you. All right, so lastly, every fellow is awarded a $1,000 stipend paid out in two installments. And we don't need to ask anyone about this because money is good, right? We all agree on that. All right, cool. So it's time for questions from the audience. So does anybody have a question that they want to ask our esteemed panel? Someone? Anyone? Perfect. Easy to get to. Yeah. Uh, this is a repeat question from earlier that I heard. Someone had mentioned when they had gone, uh, they were curious to know how many times others had been rejected. And I'm curious to know if anyone here had applied more than once to the fellowship before being accepted. Okay, so at least we have one. Yeah. That's it? <laughs> Natalie was rejected more than once. of all my rejections in general for writing. Yeah. And I've had like 140 like rejections for just a journal for yeah. fellowships and stuff. So. Yeah. 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 Rejection is good for you. Puts hair on your chest, my dad used to say. I, apparently that was a good thing. I don't know. Do we have another question? Anyone? Can you yell or do you want the microphone? Uh, thank you. Okay, go. Uh, I just want to say um, I almost wasn't going to come. Like psyching myself, like driving around my own neighborhood, whether to come or not, which kind of embodies my day-to-day life as a ro- aspiring writer. So I just want to say thank you to Natalie for saying you should come. Oh it was yeah! Her tweet that pushed me to here. Amazing. <laughs> Even your tweets are powerful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you. That's amazing. Wow. Cool. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm glad you're here too. Anybody else have? Yeah. Do you want this? No, that's okay. I'm just wondering, how do you get your mentors? Like, do they come to you and say, "I'd like to mentor someone," or Really, we wait until the fellows, the fellowship is awarded, and um, within the office, there's two or three of us that read applications, so we have a working list, and um, sometimes there's a name that's not on that list, but it's just, we read the application, we talk to each other, we kind of think of, like, who would work well with this person, like, you know, I've read this book, and they're doing something similar, or something totally different, but perhaps they're doing something that the fellow is struggling with, so that would be a good match, and then we go out to the writer, and and, um, you know, ask them to, to be a part of the program. And do they have to be in Los Angeles? Okay. Yes. Um, you, not only does the, does the fellow need to be in LA for January to July, um, which means you can re- relocate, you know, Kieran right now is, lives in Oakland and she's here just for the fellowship, but also because the mentor needs to meet in person. There's something about a face-to-face meeting that's totally different than via email or phone or text. So they do need to be here for, for the course of the fellowship and these and the fellow and the sorry the mentors are required to attend two of the public readings it's part of that building literary community aspect yeah um i guess the alums could talk more of this but can you talk about once the fellowship is over okay well i guess i have the mic i'll i'll talk <laughs> first um Yes, I'm still involved uh, with Penn because uh, Amanda emails me every so often. She's like, hey, do you want to volunteer for this thing for, you know, Roxanne Gay's event? Or do you want to come and um, talk to uh, the meet and greet? And, you know, I say yes. Um, We're also all connected on Facebook. So whenever there's an event that's Penn related, we go to those things. Um, We know a lot of the same writers. Um, So we're continuously connected to each other. And then also, another thing I forgot to mention was um, after this... Uh, fellowship, people who uh, ran uh, reading series here in LA just started emailing me and reaching out to me on Facebook and was like, hey, do you want to read with this you know, amazing writer? Do you want to read with this writer? Um, and so I'm constantly connected uh, with this community. Well, all of the things she just said, except that I was at in Alabama the last year, um, but now I'm living in Arizona, so I drove out here for this. Um, so something I really like to do is I like to encourage people to do things that are scary. <laughs> um, and so I encourage a lot of people to apply to this fellowship last year. Um, I went to Vona, which is like a... It's a workshop once a year that they have for writers of color. So any writers of color here um, interested, I highly recommend applying to that. But I met a bunch of people there, and I encourage them all to apply to this. Um, People I I meet online. (laughs) I mean, you know, he sent me, if if it's okay that I'm sharing this, yeah, he sent me a message on Twitter, and he's like, you know, I've I've been following you, and I admire you, and, you know, I want to apply to Vona and to Penn Center, and I told him, well, you should come to this, you know, and... um, um, I messaged him and said, this event's happening today, you should come. And so um, that has become part of this, too, is, you know, I, I think it's like, um, I mean, I seem like a very outgoing person, I think, but I, I get kind of shy when I came to these this first event, or my first time at this event, which was like three years ago, um, 
I didn't talk to anybody. I came, I listened, and I almost went up to like talk to the people on the panel, introduce myself, but I didn't, and I ran away, uh, and I didn't get in. <laughs> but I always tell people like when you're applying to these kinds of things, like oh, you know, maybe introduce yourself to people because we all. I mean, to me, it's all love here, um, and I want to see people get into this fellowship, um, especially people from. Um, marginalized communities um and so yeah that so this has become my life here um encouraging other writers i have so many writers who encourage me too and um so that's what like pen has become for me if that makes sense i feel like i'm rambling <laughs> oh yeah yeah well well so that they have a recommendation contest for if you recommend writers to um to apply to ev if the winner gets to go to what's the name of the award <laughs> lit fest which is like this really bougie award ceremony that I think it's like a couple hundred bucks to go to which I would never go to but I gotta go for free and schmooze with all these fancy people so you guys if you all apply you can put me down as a referral <laughs> so I can go again no, no but that's something that's you know that's also a benefit too um yeah I love it. That bougie. What's that bougie lit thing? Um, also, we're always asking EVs to volunteer for that stuff. So it's like for me that after I finished with EV, that was like the the, the first thing that I volunteered for. It was something that I would never do. And um, I think Joan Didion was supposed to be there. It's just kind of like you you have access to people that you wouldn't normally have access to. And it's cool for you to just walk up and introduce yourself. So um, do we have another question? Yeah. Uh, regarding the mentorship, is it that you're working on one particular uh, work, or is it that you're improving your writing in general? So when you apply to the fellowship, you need to have a, you need to do a project proposal. So basically, it's like you're working on a book or a collection of short stories or a poetry collection or a memoir. And basically, that's what you'll be working on for the fellowship. And we generally, um, well suggest, strongly suggest that whatever you propose as your project, those are the pages that you submit. Because then that gives us an idea that you are far enough along in your project that that you're you've put enough time into it and that you're committed to it and that you'll be able to um com- you know, not complete it, but you'll be focused and working on it for the seven months. I see you. <laughs> I see you putting your hand behind the other lady's head so I don't see you. Okay. Um, can you give an idea of how many applications you receive and also if you focus on any one part of the application more than the other? Great, good questions. Okay, so the questions are how many applications do we get and what do we focus on? So I can't say how many applications that we get. I read a lot. Actually, this year for 2018, we had to extend the reading period because of of how many applications we got. Uh, And most important is your writing sample. So um, a lot of times in that first round of reading, we're we're going directly to the writing sample. And so you have to be talented. And then we look at everything else. Um, Not only are you talented, but you need us. And that's why your short answers are so important. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. What's the, I think I know that there's an interview process. What's that like? What's the interview process like, guys? 
it's a, it's a little bit intimidating. So it's one on like eight, I think. You walk into a room, you sit at a table with eight other people. Seven. And they're, they're actually really nice, but you don't know that at the time because they're all strangers to you. Um, I don't know, quickly it comes out that they are, they are pretty cool, but, but I was frazzled and they asked me like, hey, what are you reading? And I couldn't remember the name of the book and I tried to describe it and it sounded like an idiot and I thought for sure I wasn't going to get it. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, but that's, the, that's the short thing, short answer. It's a, it's a, it's a seven-person pa- seven panel that interviews you and they're actually really friendly if you take a breath and like let it in. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it's it's a little intimidating. Um, like I've been in job interviews where there's a lot of people, and then it's just you. It's always intimidating. But with this, like I could feel the warmth in the room, though. Um, so I think that you know we're just really nervous. But I think everyone in that room wants you to do well. So just go in um, ready, prepared to talk about yourself. Um, and what you like to read, and your writing, and why you think your writing's important, and I think you'll be fine. I've been on the other side of it. I'm the person who come to talk to, and we said there's seven of us, and we 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 don't we get we get snacks. But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, you don't get snacks. We get snacks, and we we, we lord over you. But the thing is, we really we, we you, you you sort of have you there's a. There's a, this is your third selection by that time, right? Or second or third? Final oh, the final one. The final one. Well, then you sort of championing your people. You sort of got these kind. I really want this person to get it, and then they come in, and everyone's sort of arguing and saying who's going to be like that. And it's this whole thing where you know you this this, this is the person you want to happen. This is it. This is the person you want to happen. And they come in, and you're like, see, see, they're fucking good. I want this person. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And then we all go in the parking lot and fight each other for the people that we want to win. <laughs> Should that help? Also, I'll add when I interviewed, I you know the the whole question, what are you reading? And I was reading Jillian Lauren's Some Girls, and I was like, I was in love with this memoir, and I talked about it at length. And then you get you go in in January and you open your book to see who your mentor is, and Jillian Lauren was my mentor, so it was like amazing. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. I would like to know on the panel, how many of you have day jobs while you're in the program? Because it seems it could be a good challenging to do your day job as well as do the writing. I think we'll just go down the line because I think everyone has a day job. Yeah, I do have a day job and um, I also work in Valencia and the author evenings are in Beverly Hills. So I make that drive and... At first, it's, you know, it's a challenge. I'm also, like, not a, you know, I'm not, I don't like driving. Um, But uh, this this fellowship has, you know, turned me into a real Angelino. I just drive everywhere now. (laughs) Yeah, I had a uh, full-time job, right, uh, when I was doing the fellowship, 40-hour, you know, salary. Um, but you make it happen, you know, you schedule it into your calendar, um, and Amanda's very much about, like, you have to be there on time, so if you're, like, 10 minutes late, you're late. I'm sorry, 10 minutes early, you're late, so you need to be, like, very early. Um, but yeah, you make it happen because the writing is important to you, um, and you're, and you're dedicated. Yeah, I, I have a day job, too, and I also have two kids, so it, and this fellowship is very intensive, so I think it, it 
it's being realistic. You do need to like, I needed to buckle down on my time management and really understand how to like maximize every minute. And I write like on my phone all the time now because it's sort of my, I dictate to my phone in the car. That's one of, one of my ways. I listen to books on tape because you do have to read a lot for, for the fellowship. Um, so it's pretty taxing in your organizational abilities, but it's totally worth it though. Enjoy. Yeah, I worked full-time um, in college admissions at an art school during the fellowship, and it was very intense. Um, but, you know, I made this, you know, I made this my priority, my job secondary. <laughs> and um, I, uh, um, and I made it work, you know, it's hard, but you make it work. I think with Pete, we were we were very curious about his child care. Like, I think that was a lot of questions we had for Pete. It was like, so, if one of your kids get hit by a car, who's going to go and take care of them if you also have an author evening? It was like a mathematical equation. Like, where, how dedicated are you really? Yeah, yeah. We were, we were not kidding about that. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, can you talk about the assignments you all had to do? Said pages are due often. Like, how many assignments do you have? So, for men- for mentors, like with your mentors. Um, I don't know what what they're referring to. They said they it's mentioned a that they have. Okay, yeah. Um, deadlines are almost, like, they're, everything's a deadline. Um, so you are reading for your author evening, so you have to have read that author's book prior to the author evening, and you need to be able to talk, you know, uh, have an educated discussion with whoever that is, be it an author, be it an agent, a publisher. Uh, I send weekly reminder emails, try to put information in there, you know, here's 10 questions to ask an agent, here's 10 questions to ask a publisher. Um, also, when you're in your UCLA class, you're working shopping pages there. So those deadlines are determined by your instructor. When you're in your master class, those deadlines are determined by your master class instructor. And then also you ha- you owe pages to your mentor. So your mentor it has agreed, your mentor signs an agreement just like you do at the beginning of the fellowship that they will see, I think, 50 pages, 50 to 75 pages of your writing, um, 10 to 15 pages of poetry, I think so. Um, and uh, they need to see your work what you're going to read at the welcome party, what you're going to read at the mid-program reading, and your final reading pages, so that you have eyes on your work all the time, everything you're writing. That being said, the fellowship is very demanding, so it's, you, you know, you might often be struggling to even turn in that that those pages. It's tough to be reading, be writing. Natalie and Jen, they had, I, I was it like 50 books that you guys were supposed to read? Um, yeah, because they had a public author evening series and sometimes there'd be four, sometimes even five writers and it was like, okay, you guys just read like a paragraph so it looks like you know what you're talking about. You know? Does that answer your question? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Um, what is the ideal like level wise and like attitude wise and other things along that line? Whoa. Hmm, that is a great question. Thank you. <laughs> publications. Are publications necessary? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so you don't have to be published to be an emerging voice, but you do need to have a body of work per se, because we're asking you for 20 pages of prose because we want to know that you have 20 pages of prose. And that doesn't mean that people don't get in that, you know, maybe they only have 20 pages, maybe they only have 25 pages, but you need to be able to talk about your work in a way that like, we know that you're, you have this project and you want to be a writer. Um, because that's what this fellowship exists for. It's like, it's not that you are a writer for seven months and then you go off and do something else. It doesn't mean that you have to finish a book. Like for myself, I make a career as a freelance writer and I am working on a book. Um, but we also kind of want to see people that have tried other routes. Like you need to, we need to know that you need us. Like, Oftentimes, people that are right out of college, you know, I, I might suggest, like, this writing's great, but not yet, because you haven't tried it on your own. So you don't know that you're underrepresented. You don't know that you can't make it. You don't know that you need us as a resource. So, um, you know, maybe you've taken a few classes at UCLA. Maybe you've been in a few workshops. Um, maybe you have, a, a, you know, a rough draft of a manuscript, and you don't know what to do with it, because you don't know any writers. Does that, does that help? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry, that was a hard one. I, Christopher, did you write that down? You didn't. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, I know you have to keep two references. Now, do you want for the references to be referencing your writing, or is it just vouching for you as a person? Like, what are you? Well, some people don't have anyone who, to vouch for their writing. You know, so some people don't, don't even have a reader for their writing. So if you don't have that, look for someone that vouches for you as a person and your ability to complete a long-term task. So that could be someone in your community, like maybe not your mom, you know, and if it is your mom, like have her have a different name or something. So we don't know as her mom, but like you're, you know, uh, someone in your community, your boss, you know, your pastor, I, I don't know, somebody who's known no, absolutely not. If you can, that's great, but some people don't have that, so you kind of just have to do what you can do. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? All right, guys. Well, thank you all for coming out. This is wonderful. I hope to see every single one of your applications, but I won't know that it's you, because please don't send in a photo with your application, because that's weird. <laughs> Okay, and thank you to our panel, Natalie, Pete, Jen, Patrick, Soleil, Mike. Let's give them all a big round of applause. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.